And you guys may be seated. Love the love being able to sing to each other the fixed reality that our whole sin, not just a part of our sin, but our all of our sin, right, was nailed to the cross because he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so being able to sing that together, sing that loud together, and be reminded of that through melody is encouraging, that no matter where we are in life, that remains true about God's church. Amen? In the last few weeks, uh, starting last week really, uh, we're doing just a short kind of four-week series where, um, and again at the risk of being a bit redundant, uh, what we're doing is ensuring that moving forward, we're going to operate according to our theology. And so over the course of the summer, we have kind of worked through uh, different theological concepts that we see in Scripture. We've looked to how our statement of faith summarizes those key doctrines. And, uh, and hopefully over the course of the summer, what we've grown to realize together is that Uh, Our theology doesn't matter uh, at all if it doesn't inform how we practice, if it doesn't inform how we worship as a church, if it doesn't inform how we think, if it doesn't inform uh, how we uh, collide with our culture um, as we seek to be ambassadors for Christ. Uh, Our theology doesn't matter unless it informs those things. And so last week we um, worked through just a biblical theology, if you will, uh, or biblical philosophy even, if you will, of uh, Lord's Day worship and, and the significance of that. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at membership, building the church through membership. And building the church is really what we're calling this series. Next week, we're going to look at missions, uh, building the church through missions. And then our last week, uh, we're going to look at building the church through optimism, um, just God-centered, Bible-fueled optimism, our, our, the perspective that we should have uh, as God's church no matter what we see in our society. But this morning, we're going to look at membership, and I'm going to pray uh, because this is going to, again, we're not camping out in one particular passage. I'm going to show you uh, three or four different passages this morning, but I'm, um, so I'll, you, know, you can just kind of get good at turning to various places, but I'm going to pray, and then we will just jump right in. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you again for this time that we have to be able to come together according to your word, and, um, and God, by your spirit, uh, sing to you, uh, be reminded of uh, just who you are for us in Christ and, and how good you are to us, Lord. Uh, and God, help us to remember that we are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King. And, uh, and so, Lord, we help us to, to live in light of that reality, God. Help us to continually rest in Christ. And this morning, as we look at your word and we seek to um, apply it to our lives, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and strength and clarity, God, and, and that you would uh, continue to knit us in unity, and um, both theologically uh, and relationally, God, as we seek to honor you and uh, as we seek uh, to build your kingdom uh, here on earth as it is in heaven. And we love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, the first thing, if you're taking notes, uh, that we need to see that's a very fundamental thing is that membership, uh, membership in a local church, uh, is what uh, particularly I'm speaking about. Membership in a local church is not salvific. 
It's not salvific. That means that membership in a church uh, is not the thing that saves you any more than attending church saves you. Look with me, um, and for those of you that have been in church life for any length of time, you're familiar with this passage, but Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, particularly verses 8 and 9, we see the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, right? it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? Paul here, again, writing to the church of Ephesus, uh, he's in the midst of just reveling in the glorious gospel uh, that God invented and that God has used to save his church. And, and in, in the midst of all of it, he, he takes special care, he takes extra care to remind the Ephesians that, that the gospel really is all of God's doing, right? It's not 90% of God's doing and then there's 10% remaining for us to do in order to gain our salvation. The gospel of God is all of God's doing. Now, why would Paul, and and if you're familiar with Pauline letters, letters that Paul has written, why, uh, you you know that this is kind of the format that he follows typically, reveling in the glorious gospel and then getting to uh, what our philosophy should look like in light of the theology, a lot of what we've been doing over the course of this summer and uh, in these few remaining weeks here. But why, why does the Apostle Paul structure many of his letters this way? Why does he structure the book of Ephesians in this way? I think it's because we, we have the, the propensity to fall into a sort of works-based salvation checklist, if you will. Right? And, and in falling to that and defaulting to that, we often def- deceive ourselves, right? We can deceive ourselves a lot in one of two ways. We either trust in our own righteousness, which Isaiah talks about being filthy rags before a holy God, or we begin to despair thinking that we've got to be good enough to keep it, and, and we're keenly aware of our sins, and, and, and we're keenly aware of, of God's holiness, both which are good things, but the, the thing that's often missing from that is Christ who's our mediator, we fall into a works-based salvation, right? Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 here, that we've been saved by grace through faith. And neither of these things are achieved on our own merit. And, and just because Paul knows his own heart and therefore knows the heart of man here, he, under the, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, he eliminates every object and rebukes every slip into workspace salvation. Just listen to how the text can go. If, I'll just put it another way. We may say, well, I go to church, and I go to church. I'm a member in good standing. I, I try to make sure that I'm at small group, and I serve the church. I give financially to the mission of the church. I think I'm doing okay. And the Apostle Paul says, this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. Or we say, you know, when, when I compare myself to other people, I think I'm doing better than so-and-so. I think I, think I have my stuff together more than, more than this person. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 
It's the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. I mean, we may say in our minds, and maybe we don't say this exactly, but maybe we think and we operate this way. Well, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Paul says, not a result of works. He concludes with saying, nobody can boast. No one can boast in their salvation. All right, Christ alone is my righteousness. Christ alone is my righteousness. Now, don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm going to preach on the importance of being a member in a local church, and certainly we looked at the the priority of the Lord's Day last week. But these these things aren't our righteousness. It's, it's the, these things aren't the foundation that we stand on. Right? These are things that we commit um, to while standing on the firm foundation, the unshakable foundation of Christ Jesus. Right? Who's the the cornerstone of our faith. We, we commit ourselves to these things Nothing that we do, all of what God in Christ has done by the power of His Holy Spirit living in us. But let's, let's work through this idea of membership. And again, if you're taking notes, you can kind of shorthand this if you like. Because this is, is a, a little bit of what I want to tease out for the, the remainder of our time together. Okay, so membership in a local church is not salvific. Membership in a local church does open up the opportunity to obey clear biblical commands in Scripture. Therefore, all Christians should be members in a local church. Membership in a local church does open up the opportunity to obey clear biblical commands in Scripture. Therefore, all Christians should be members of in a local church. And I want to break this down in three different ways for us this morning. First, I want to look at it from a, a, con- a congregant and an elder standpoint, okay? So from the perspective of a congregant and an elder standpoint, then I want to look at it from the aspect of dealing with, with sin, with, with mortifying the flesh as we're commanded by God uh, to do. And, and then third, I want to look at it uh, in closing from a benevolence standpoint, from a benevolent standpoint. So first from a congregant and elder standpoint, then from an aspect of, of dealing with sin, mortifying the flesh, and then uh, from an aspect of benevolence. And so let, let's look first at just this idea of submission uh, at a congregational level and keeping watch from an elder level. Look at Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. You can turn there in your Bibles, or I think we have it up on the screen as well. But the preacher to the Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And again, this, this is the passage that we looked at, chapter 10 last week, when, when the preacher of the Hebrews says, Don't neglect to assemble yourselves. Okay, now we see here in uh, three chapters later, Obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping. Watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, right? We've talked a lot in the, over the last couple of months about being accountable to God. And then the preacher goes on and says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, now, if we're paying attention to, to what we've just read here, there's at least two questions, not, not just two questions, but at least two questions that we should ask of a text like this. First question is this, 
who do you submit to as a Christian? Right? Who do you submit to as a Christian? Right? The, the preacher of the Hebrews here is saying, obey your leaders and submit to. He, he's talking to Christians who, uh, as we're reading this, even far removed, who do we submit to as Christians? Secondly, who do the elders, the leaders, shepherd? Right? Who do the elders, the leaders, shepherd? Because they're going to give an account to God for shepherding the flock. So who do, who do Christians submit to, number one? Secondly, who do the elders, who do the leaders shepherd? Right? So let, let's think through the, the first question. Are, are, are you to submit to, to any elder? Are you, are you to submit to, to, to any leader in any particular denomination? As I was working through the sermon, my mind drifted back to, and these people thankfully don't get a lot of traction nowadays, and some of you may remember, some of you don't, but uh, I think back to the, the Westboro Baptist days, right, where uh, this, this particular organization um, got a lot of media attention um, for various reasons. And, and when we read a passage like this, a legitimate question should be, okay, there's elders, there's pastors of a congregation like that. Or am I accountable to su- submit to them as, as a Christian? Right? I, I think of prosperity gospel sort of churches, right? Health and wealth uh, uh, emphasis in, in these sorts of movements, right? And some of these movements, they, they label themselves as apostles, we did give an account. Are we going to give an account for? Should we? Are we supposed to submit to them? Right. Are you accountable to submit to any elder, any pastor, anybody that claims some sort of title or authority with any particular theological framework or any particular so-called church? Is that what this text means? Is that what we should be walking away uh, with, having spent time in it? And of course, the, the answer is, is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right? Aside from that being impossible, right? it isn't biblical. Right? It's not just impossible, but it's not biblical because there, there's an implied membership in Scripture. There, there's an implied clear commitment to a local church. We could see the evidence of that just in the book of Hebrews itself, a particular congregation with particular needs and particular issues going on with a preacher who is comforting them and pastoring them and knows them well and is instructing them about, um, about how their, their theology, their system of beliefs about who God is and who they are, uh, how that plays out in the nitty-gritty details of their life. We can pick that up just from that book alone. But think about, I mean, the book of Hebrews. We considered it a little bit last week, but think about it again for a moment. The the preachers to the Hebrews, he he gave this sermon to a Jewish, mainly Jewish congregation who together they were experiencing all forms of, of, of persecution this was a church that was to be committed to Christ and, and committed to one another. And a key part in their perseverance wasn't just meeting together, although we saw last week that 
is absolutely essential, but that, that's not, that's not the, the, the only part in their perseverance, but it was also having their souls watched over by God's under-shepherds, by elders, by pastors here, right? Which leads us to answering the second question on, question on who the elders are to shepherd, right? It's the flock, right? Who, who's the flock? Certainly, it's not the, it's not the universal church. Certainly, as an elder team, myself, Scott's, as I'll continue to call them, and Doug, certainly we're not giving an account to God for, for people that we don't even know, right? And to even think that way, right? Even think that I'm responsible for the universal church, I think could be wildly blasphemous because there's only one head to the universal church. There's only one head to the inv- invisible church, and that's Jesus Christ, who's the head of his church, the ultimate head of his church. Right? As elders, we're, we don't have authority over an invisible church. We don't have authority over visible churches that we're not a part of. And even the local church that's gathered here this morning, as we saw weeks ago, Christ Jesus is the chief shepherd, right? Elders are under shepherds. Right? But elders are responsible for particular congregations that are, that are gathered. But as I look at a passage like this, right, that, that even as an elder is, is a question I'm asking. Who am I called to watch over? Right? And the Holy Spirit-inspired text in Hebrews said to the members of the Hebraic church, submit to your leaders and to the elders. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That, I would argue, necessitates a type of membership. Right? It necessitates a clear understanding between the elders and members of, of commitment, of covenant. And for us as 21st century Westerners, it seems that we have to look at a passage of Scripture like this, where we don't experience even near the amount of persecution that our brothers in, in the first uh, century church were facing, and, and much of the persecution that our brothers and sisters around the world face. We have to be, I think, even more intentional and clear because evangelical, evangelicalism in America has grown very autonomous, to an unhealthy degree, autonomous and lazy in her commitment to Christ's body. The persecuted church in the, the first century and our brothers and sisters around the world feel the pressing weight of needing Christ and of needing one another. We've numbed ourselves as Western Christians. We've numbed ourselves through entertainment. We've numbed ourselves through wealth. We've numbed ourselves through this this kind of individualistic form of Christianity that, that is really, at the end of the day, an imposter Christianity, a counterfeit Christianity. The Scripture is clear for us that the very things that God has called us to do and be as Christ's church really do require membership. And while we may not find that word membership in the Bible, there's no way for us to be whole counsel of God Christians apart from it. We have to be devoted to Christ in the context of our commitment to one another. Last week, as we spent time on Lord's Day worship, everything that we covered last week had a corporate nature to it. 
right? It had a corporate nature to it. Think of, of singing, right? We just finished singing. Think of singing, for example. I mean, for us as, as 21st century Western Christians, we may gather with God's church but sing without any sort of mindfulness of the congregation, right? Sing as individuals, rather singing while discerning God's church, God's bride, God's body being gathered together. We're to be devoted to Christ, and we're to be devoted to one another. And membership, we should see, is is a mechanism by which we can do that. And, And let me define membership for us, just a couple of ways. Just a couple of ways, and, and we'll, we'll send this out to you in our Monday message if you'd like, so don't stress about jotting it down, but just define membership for us. First definition, I'll put it this way. Membership in a local church is a means by which we can express our commitment to Christ's body, share in its mission, and willingly entrust ourselves to the watchfulness and care of the elders in keeping with God's word. Membership in a local church is a means by which we can express our commitment to Christ's body, share in its mission, and willingly entrust ourselves to the watchfulness and care of the elders in keeping with God's Word. Let me put it another way. Membership in a local church, and this is a shorter way of putting it, membership in a local church is the vehicle by which we obey many of the commands in Scripture. Membership in a local church is the vehicle by which we obey many of the commands in Scripture. So if you're a member here, who uh, has God appointed to watch over your soul? It's the elders of Deer Park Fellowship. It's the elders of Deer Park Fellowship. And for us as elders, we're charged by God and accountable to God to pay attention to the well-being of our members, particularly the spiritual well-being of our members We're going to give an account to God for the quality of the shepherding, the quality of the care that we give. Now flip over with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Because I want to look at another aspect of um, membership opening up for us, this ability for us to obey clear teachings in God's Word. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to talk about dealing with sin for a moment. And I'm going to look particularly at verses 15 to 20. Or Matthew documents the words of Christ here under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, You've gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. All right, this, this is what I called a few weeks ago when we looked at it briefly, the seeking ministry of the church. This passage comes after uh, Christ gives the parable 
of the, the shepherd who leaves the, the 99 sheep and, and goes off to find the one wayward sheep so that that sheep can be brought back into the fold of God. Right? The, the church is to, it's expected by Christ that this chur- the church will carry on this type of mission. Right? But with who? Who are we continuing this mission with? Right? Who is it that we're responsible for? How do we obey a passage like this? Now, certainly, if we have relationships with other Christians outside of this local assembly that are drifting, we should want to confront them out of a love for Christ and a love for them. But there's a corporate nature in this Matthew chapter 18 passage, and, and you'll find this all in the Old Testament and New Testament passages related to confrontation. And it's this, God-glorifying confrontation happens in the context of the local church. God-glorifying confrontation happens in the context of the local church. Let's break down this passage of Scripture for a moment, just so we can see that a bit more clearly. First, we see this, verse 15 there. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Stop there for a moment. Because I think that this can be expanded beyond, beyond your, your brother sinning, sinning against you personally. Again, think about it in the context of this local church and, and then harmonize it with a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Flip over there with me just quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. just want to look at the first eight verses here. The Apostle Paul again writing to a dysfunctional church, the church of Corinth, right, about matters pertaining to conduct, matters pertaining to worship here. And he says this, he says it's actually reported, okay, Paul has heard this report, it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, he says, some translations say among the pagans, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And this is the particular thing about the seeking aspect, because it's not just the destruction of his flesh. There's a purpose behind it, that his spirit... Right? Or a soul may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, a reconciling, seeking sort of work. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In this passage, in 1 Corinthians 5 here, there, there's a man who's sleeping with his father's wife. Right? It's either his stepmother or this is incest, one or the other. And the church is tolerating it by either A, ignoring it, or B, accepting that it's legitimate. And notice what's going on here. This man is sinning against God primarily, right? And we know that. David, who who had Uriah moved to the fiercest part of the battle, Psalm chapter 51, had Uriah murdered, perhaps raped 
Bathsheba, right, try to cover up his sin when he, uh, after he's confronted by Nathan, the prophet Nathan, there's a confession um, that, that we see even in Psalm 51 against you and you only have I sinned, right? He certainly sinned against Uriah, sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against the kingdom, but his, his, his repentance was Godward and everything flew from that. And so we know that, that, that there is a sinning against God primarily, and then there's a sinning against this man's father. There's a sinning against this, this man's father's wife. But from a passage like this, we see how this concerns the whole church at Corinth, right? It, it concerns the whole church at Corinth. Out of, out of either acceptance or cowardice, the church has failed to confront this so-called brother in Christ. And Paul rebukes them for it and tells them in verse 6 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, habitual unrepentant sin that is tolerated in God's church will spread like wildfire in the church. And this does several things. First, according to 1 John, right, when, when habitual unrepentant sin is tolerated in a church, according to 1 John, it's the equivalent of calling God a liar, right? There's a blasphemous nature to it because we're pretending that there is no sin, right? Secondly, tolerated sin hinders the gospel reputation of the church. And third, it's unloving to tolerate sin. It's unloving to the man, right? Chiefly, it's unloving to God, right? It's unloving to the man. It's unloving to the man's father. It's unloving to his father's wife. So Paul's counsel to them is to put this man out to put him out. And what we need to see is that we're not our own, right? If we are in Christ Jesus, we were bought with a price. We're not our own. We shouldn't think of ourselves while we are individuals uniquely created in the image of God. That is not something even more truer to that is that we're a part of the body and bride of Christ that is expressed through us gathering here, is expressed through our membership, our commitment to one another. We're to function as members of a particular congregation. We should see that our decisions are not made in a vacuum. There's a ripple effect to the things that we do, right? Sins of commission, sins of omission. Just as with our good works, there's a a good, positive, God-glorifying ripple effect to that as well in the body of God's saints. But come back with me to Matthew 18 because we only looked at the first step there, all right? Step one is if your brother sins against you, confront him alone, and if he listens by repenting and and resting in the finished work of Jesus, praise God for that, right? You've won a brother. He's no longer deceived by sin. But But if that doesn't work, step two, according to Matthew chapter 18, is this. Take one or two others with you to establish evidence, right? Take one or two others with you to establish evidence. One or two others from where? From the church, not some strangers on the street, right? God's church, people that love and care for this brother that's gone astray as much as you care about this brother who's gone astray. Come with me. Our brother is deceived by sin. 
Christ started a seeking and a reconciliation ministry, and he's commanded his church to continue that seeking and reconciliation ministry. And this is the process by which he's given us to do this. Come with me. Out of love for God and love for our brother, come with me. So take one or two others with you to establish evidence. And and by the way, I preached on the the law of God a few weeks ago. We talked about the threefold division of the law. This is a good application, a good illustration of how the general equity of of the civil law, we've seen the Old Testament about evidence not being established except by two or three witnesses, right? We don't accept isolated accusations at face value, according to the Bible, right? Our, Our the, the one confronting the brother in sin is now to establish evidence and taking a few brothers with him. And the aim should be to shock the conscience of this believer, this brother that's deceived by sin, this hardened individual, is to shock his conscience into repenting and being reconciled not only to God, but to the, the, the rest of God's body, his, this particular congregation, this particular church. And we know furthermore that one or two brothers that would be taken with this individual to confront what's in view here as a particular congregation because of step three that we have. Right? If he refuses even after that, if he says, no, I'm not without sin, which again is the equivalent of saying, no, God is a liar. Right? If he continues down that path, the text says that we're to tell the church. What church? Are we to tweet this stuff out? (laughs) This particular congregation. We know this process, we know it to be labeled as as church discipline, right? But, But what we need to see from this is that God has given, graciously given, this good, kind, unchanging God has given His, He's given local churches. He's given local churches as a means to help us, each one of us, rest in Christ and walk in the light. Right? God is gracious to bring all of us together that the more we get to know each other, the more we may find that many of us don't have a whole lot in common outside of Christ Jesus. But man, that's the most intimate thing we can have in common, isn't it? It's the, very, it's the most important thing about us. And God has graciously given us, local churches, as a means by which we can continue to persevere in the faith. We're not meant to travel the Christian road alone, right? If the early church was plagued by sin, such as what we see in 1 Corinthians 5, which is incest at worst, adultery with a stepmother at best, how much more do we, 2,000 plus years removed from that, how much more do we need a local assembly that we're committed to to remind us of who our triune God is and who we are in Christ? We really need each other. Church membership is a means by which we can mutually submit ourselves to God's ordained means of accountability. And this brings Him glory, right? It preserves the witness of the church, and it's for our good, Right? Anytime something brings God's, God glory, it's for our good. It's for our good. And then last, we see that benevolence is made possible through membership. Benevolence is made possible through membership. I mentioned this passage in passing a few weeks ago. 
and we'll probably revisit it when we get to our First Timothy series because it's related to First Timothy 3. But Acts chapter 6, if you just want to quickly turn there with me. This, I think, is the installation of the first deacons. Starting with verse 4 in chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the, the Hellenists, which were... The Hellenists were Jewish Christians who spoke Greek. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned, right, the twelve disciples, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty, but we're going to devote our, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Right? God has given graciously, as we saw a few weeks ago, two offices in the church, elders and deacons, and when those two are operating in a way uh, that is biblical and that brings glory to God, uh, the church of God is cared for well. Right? But we see here that the Holy Spirit of God, if you're familiar with this passage, is saving people through the, the faithful preaching of God's Word, and as a result of the faithful prayers of, of God's people as well, particularly the twelve disciples. And, and we have this legitimate complaint uh, that's registered with the disciples. Right? The, the widows were being neglected in the, the daily distribution. And, and I think here of perhaps food or, or some aspect of having uh, material needs met here. So, so there seems to be this official, um, this official like program, if you will, in in which people connected to this particular people had physical needs met, right? And there must have been a roster of sorts for these types of people, right? We can call this this list a who are we responsible for sort of list that was being kept here, right? There there was an understanding that the widows under the care of the disciples, were unintentionally being neglected. So seven men were ordained as deacons, and they were assigned this task of ensuring that benevolence needs were met, while the disciples, the twelve, the original, the twelve apostles here, spent their time praying and in doing the ministry of the Word, namely the, the preaching and the teaching or the private ministry of the Word sort of stuff. Right? This sort of benevolence care, ensuring that God's people have food or some, something, if someone falls on hard times financially, right? this sort of benevolence care is, is made possible through an understood membership. Who are we to care for spiritually? Who are we to care for physically? Who are we to come alongside of to make sure that those physical needs are not neglected? What believers are we responsible for in this local church? And so membership isn't salvific, right, as we've seen, but membership does open up for us this opportunity to obey clear teachings of God's Word. And so we want to make sure that we're a people that um, are, again, trying to uh, be whole counsel of God's Word people. And, uh, and I think that membership uh, helps to open that door for us. And so a few things that I just want us to see. First thing I want to do 
is I want to read to you because I've got one takeaway this morning, and, and, the, and the one takeaway is this. If you're a regular attender at Deer Park Fellowship, the ask of the elders is that you'll join this church family in membership for God's glory and for your good. And, and I want to give you a simple way that you can begin that process with us. You can fill out a Connect card, and you can either leave that Connect card in, in the pew or you can drop it in the drop basket on your way out, because what we'll do is, as elders, we'll follow up with you, uh, because we want to make sure that we're caring for the people that God has entrusted to us. And so that, out of the takeaways that we typically get on a Sunday, that's one takeaway for us this morning, that if you're a regular attender, that you would join with us in membership. And I, I just want to, to close, get, read through our membership covenant, or our membership commitment, just so this is the thing that that you would sign annually as we annually remember our commitment to the Lord and our commitment to each other uh, as God's church. And, And it's eight statements, and these are the statements. Number one, I'll maintain a practice of repenting of my personal sin and trusting in Christ alone for salvation as I remember regularly by my baptism. That's number one. Number two, I will worship with the gathered church regularly on the Lord's Day. Number three, I will raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord by taking personal responsibility for their education and discipleship in the gospel. Number four, I'll protect the unity of my church by acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, and by submitting to the elder team. Number five, I'll share the responsibility of my church by praying for its growth, evangelizing unbelievers, inviting the unchurched to attend, and by warmly welcoming those who do attend. Number six, I'll serve the ministry of my church by actively serving in it and by being equipped to serve through the instruction of my elders, pastors, and by developing a humble servant's heart. Number seven, I'll support the ministry and mission of the church by tithing. And number eight, I'll not work against the statement of faith or the creed subscribed to by the church. And so if this is a place that you have grown to begin to call home, our ask this morning for you is to make, um, make a commitment to this church body um, so that uh, for you, uh, clear biblical commands that we see in Scripture can be opened up better. And, and this morning, the things that we've worked through are by no means exhaustive, but I do think that they're uh, very, uh, it, it's, these are very fundamental things that um, membership allows us to do. Um, and so my prayer is that we, as God's church, will respond accordingly. And so with that said, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for allowing us to gather here as your church. And God, we thank you for the the church that you've been assembling here, God. We've gone through a lot of changes over the last couple of years, immense changes. And God, you have been gracious and kind to us, Lord. And God, I uh, pray for our church body. Lord, I, uh, we thank you for those that you have brought here, Lord. And we ask that you would help us all to conform more into the image of Christ Jesus and to walk in obedience uh, to your word. God, I pray for those that are regular attenders this morning, God, that they would make a commitment to this church body um, to be, um, to walk in uh, accountability and commitment to, um, 
to expand your kingdom through working through this local church, God. And so your great commission, as we're going to see next week, is fulfilled primarily uh, through the local church. And so, God, uh, we are excited about what you're doing here. We're excited about what you're doing uh, in the world as the gospel continues to advance by your grace and by your means. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.